Placebos. How do we begin to explain their scientific validity? There's no scientific reason as to why sugar pills should help those suffering from major depression disorder or high blood pressure, or why the belief of ingesting alcohol should make you act as if you were intoxicated, but it does. Many scientists are still at a loss as to why environmental and social contexts can be so effective in medical treatments. Placebos are a tangible example of how powerful our minds are and the effects that belief systems can have on our physiological health. In this episode, we'll cover everything that you've always wanted to know about placebos. Everything from what they are, to how they work, and even ethical issues behind them. Stay tuned to learn more about the pseudoscientific topic of placebos. So, what is a placebo? Firstly, there are two differentiating placebos, pure and impure. Pure placebos are substances that have no clinical value, such as a sugar pill, and are in fact presented to an individual as fake treatments, while an impure placebo is a substance or treatment that does have some sort of clinical value, but it does not target what the patient needs. This practice of impure placebo can be helpful to relieve an anxious patient that is worried about their health, without any physiological sign of the disease. These treatments can include vitamins or even complementary alternative medicine. Anyway. Most scientific papers refer to a common placebo effect, that is noted improvement of a patient after he or she is given an inert substance or fake treatment such as a sham surgery. The placebo effect is a result of the psychosocial context in which the placebo prop was given, because the drug itself has caused no change in a patient's condition. However, in a drug-related experiment, scientists must be careful when attributing a patient's recovery to a certain cause. This is because correlation does not equal causation. A nice little diagram in a 2011 neuropsychopharmacology paper chart describes some of the possible mechanisms that occur in a patient's brain after a placebo has been administered that could lead to improvement. These include spontaneous remission, regression to the mean, biases, detection ambiguity, unidentified co-interventions, and psychosocial psychobiological factors. Therefore, a scientifically valid and reliable experiment should be able to differentiate between patients that improve solely because of the placebo effect whether the drug actually works, and other factors. The placebo effect is therefore an overarching concept that encompasses several different mechanisms that differ depending on the body system that is being focused on and the therapeutic treatment being tested. In an antidepressant clinical trial, it was found that the natural history of the disease accounts for about a quarter of the patient's improvement. Another quarter is due to the drug, and one half due to the placebo effect. What do we know about placebo effects? Placebo treatments can, in fact, help with symptoms of a disease, but they hardly ever cure the disease. Interestingly enough, the symptoms that placebo often help relieve are those that are subjective to the patients and therefore cannot be accurately or scientifically measured. For example, while placebos have been noted to have no effect on the size of cancerous tumors, they have shown to help patients with common side effects of the disease, such as fatigue and pain, which again are subjective measures. We also know how to maximize the effect of placebos. Placebo effects are more often effective when they incorporate other aspects of medical care besides the drug. For example, positive interactions with medical staff, along with a placebo, can dramatically enhance the effect of the latter. Unfortunately, patients can experience negative side effects that are most likely the result of anticipation and anxiety. These are referred to as nocebo effects, which we will discuss later. How do placebos work? 
The placebo effect is a complex biopsychosocial phenomenon that focuses on the biological, psychological, and social aspect of treatment, rather than strictly the biomedical. For a placebo effect to biologically work, several parts of the brain have to be quantifiably activated, such as the prefrontal cortex, anterior insula, rostral anterior cingulate cortex, and the amygdala in placebo analgesia. Interestingly enough, many medications use the same pathways as do placebo effects. However, this biological layer is merely the superficial, tangible layer that scientists can actually see changing in the brain when a placebo effect is occurring. For a placebo to have an effect on a person, it must act in a psychological manner. This may include response conditioning based on previous experiences or the expectation and reward effects that are mediated through the body's dopamine system or even natural analgesia which comes from the body making its own painkiller, endorphins. As a matter of fact, expectation may be the main mechanism behind the Hawthorne effect, which is a term used to describe the improvement seen in patients in clinical trial, simply because they are being so closely monitored by medical personnel. Not only this, but it has been found that other mechanisms involving memory and motivation can also affect how the patient reacts to the placebo. In 1971, a group of scientists suggested that the feeling of hope in a patient was the driving force of change throughout psychotherapy, which makes sense if you think about it. If you are more likely to be hopeful for the future, then you will consciously or subconsciously assess your cognitive and behavioral traits to align them with that which you are hopeful for. As you can see, we can go on and on mentioning all of the psychological aspects of a placebo effect that have been acknowledged in scientific literature. But essentially, they all boil down to belief. The belief that you are taking something for some purpose and that it will be effective can be enough for all these mechanisms to become activated and for you to feel physiological relief. Even though it's not completely understood, it's been suggested through research that colored pills are actually more effective than white ones. Multiple pills are more effective than taking just one, injections are more effective than pills and placebo treatments, and placebo treatments administered in medical settings are more effective than those administered elsewhere, such as at home. It's also been found that treatments that are believed to be more expensive or name brand are more effective than those perceived to be cheaper or of a generic brand. Again, all of these findings of what kind of placebo treatment works better are related to an individual's beliefs and perception of what medicine is. So, what do other people have to say about the placebos? We put out a survey on Facebook asking anyone who would to fill it out regarding their beliefs on placebos. To take the responses into a bit more perspective, here are some numbers that characterize the population who took the survey. 90% of the responses came from women and only 10% came from men. More than half of the responses, 64%, came from individuals between the ages of 18 and 24. About a quarter, 22%, of the responses between the ages of 45 and 54. And 8% of the responses came from people that were over the age of 54. Only 6% of the responses came from people under the age of 18 and middle-aged people, which is people between the ages of 35 and 44. When asked whether they believe that the use of placebos could actually have an effect on a person's health, 68% of the people agreed or strongly agreed with this. The magnitude of people that answered agreed or strongly agreed shows how much people believe in the effects of placebos, and quite frankly, shows the importance of doing further research to show scientific evidence of the medical importance of placebos.
This seems to be even more important when you look at the ethics questions asked on the survey. 70% of the people who responded to the survey were against the idea of placebos being used as medical treatment, and 66% believe it was unethical for physicians to provide them as a form of treatment. This huge disparity found between what people believe about placebos and the ethics behind them shows how absent the scientific community has been in communicating with the public about scientific research behind placebos. While we do know that this survey might not have been a completely random sample, similar questions should be asked on a wider scale to find out the true thoughts of people on placebos to drive scientific research in the future. Now, we will speak about the evil twin of the placebo effect, the nocebo effect. So now that we've talked through and through about the placebo effect, let's talk a bit about what has comically been referred as the evil twin of the placebo effect, the nocebo effect. The nocebo effect is the study of negative psychosocial context around the patient and the treatment, as defined by a 2007 neuroscience article. However, in more layman's terms, it is the negative effects that occur because of expected negative consequences of therapeutic treatment. So the opposite of the placebo effect occurs here. The nocebo effect is most often seen when a placebo treatment is given and is then followed by some kind of indication, like verbal cues, in which the clinical condition might worsen. The nocebo effect has been most extensively studied in clinical trial related to pain a subjective condition. In a study looking at images of brains that were giving verbal suggestions of the pain stimulus that they were going to receive in the future, it was seen that the anticipation of the adverse event resulted in the amplification of the pain described or felt by the patient. The anterior cingulate cortex, the prefrontal cortex, and the insula were all activated as the patient was anticipating pain. And as we all may recall, these are some of the same parts of the brain that are activated during the placebo effect. Think about this. In a non-experimental setting, mom takes little Johnny, a middle schooler, to the doctor because he's been feeling a bit under the weather. Little Johnny has had a cough and a sore throat for about two days, but it's been persistent and his mom has begun to worry a bit. At the doctor's office, he's diagnosed with influenza, Within a matter of hours after the original diagnosis, little Johnny has gotten substantially worse. Sounds familiar? It happens to all of us. Once we have the evidence that we are in fact 100% sick and we know exactly why, our perceived symptoms may worsen simply because of our negative expectations of the natural course and severity of the disease. Before we delve any further, I want to define the meaning of hard and soft science. These two categories are colloquial terms used to describe the perceived rigor of scientific branches. Those having to deal with physical sciences such as chemistry are considered hard science, and those having to do with social sciences such as psychology are considered soft science. Anyway, obviously physicians are more focused on the hard aspects of medicine related to medical treatment and the symptoms and causes of a disease. However, the soft aspect of medicine that includes establishing relationships in bedside manner are not as emphasized. This characterization of the medical field starts early in the career as early in when studying for the MCAT, where hard sciences make up a large chunk of the exam. There's strong emphasis on aspects of physical science that may involve knowledge of DNA replication, for instance, but little emphasis on the complexities of cultural and ritualistic aspects of life that doctors inevitably face every day with their patients. Due to all of this, it's no surprise that the medical community as a whole has an overall inconsistent and incoherent understanding of the placebo effect as it escapes this label of hard science. However, 
The psychosocial aspect of medicine is gaining more attention and can signify that the softer aspects of medicine, such as placebos, will catch more scientific attention, allowing for more physicians to have more knowledge and understanding of this phenomenon. We kind of touched on this a little bit earlier when we interpreted our survey results. Are placebos ethical? So it all comes down to the practicality of this concept. Are placebos ethical to be used on patients in the real world? Using a placebo would entail a physician not being honest with the patient and possibly withholding some information so that the actual placebo effect can take place. The whole premise of a placebo working and becoming activated is deception from the one giving the treatment and belief from the one who is receiving this treatment. However, in the medical community, and in the entire scientific community for that matter, there is something called informed consent that states that a patient has the absolute right to know all of the information necessary before he or she can make a properly informed decision on a treatment. This requires a physician to be completely honest about the benefits, likelihood of success rate, and even side effects with the patient. However, there's been research to show that revealing all of the possible side effects to a medication could even be hindering to treatment and result in a nocebo effect, which is quite interesting. Opposers of placebo bring up valid points as to why they shouldn't be incorporated in our medicinal toolbox. Placebos tarnish the patient-physician relationship that is so essential when talking about cooperation and decreasing refusal of medically advised treatments. Their incorporation into the healthcare setting can also emphasize the one-sided relationship that was once common in clinics, where there is no trust. This relationship was characterized by paternalistic qualities in which the physician had most if not all of the jurisdiction in the patient's treatment, and the patient, similar to a child, simply went with the flow of things. When looking at scientific articles, it is very clear how little we know about how the placebo and nocebo effects exactly affect our brains and bodies. The scientific community is still studying this aspect of medicine, and even though the placebo effect is as old as medicine itself, it was only first used as part of organized clinical trial in the 1920s. Because of that, it is in its relatively new stages of research. Therefore, it may be decades before placebos are officially in or out of the medical system. Scientists have to take into account how difficult it is to control social and environmental contexts in which placebos are given that would make them unreliable in the real-world setting when looking at individual patients. However, it is a topic that has begun to receive more scientific attention, with people trying to quantify and further analyze the effects of placebos. Well, thank you for tuning in with us and listening to the pseudoscientific wonder of placebos. I hope you all enjoyed this episode and that you feel more educated on this mysterious aspect of science. If you feel inspired or intrigued by placebos, I encourage you to give it a quick Google search and you will find a myriad of resources on this topic. With that being said, tune in next time to find out more about the wonders of science. Alternative Medicine I'm sure that many of you are puzzled by the topic of alternative medicine. Unsure as to what exactly constitutes a practice being classified as alternative medicine, and most importantly, does alternative medicine actually work? 
Alternative medicine is officially recognized as complementary and alternative medicine, or CAM. It is usually divided between five main groups. Alternative medicine, mind-body interventions, biologically-based treatments, manipulative and body-based methods, and energy therapies. While there are hundreds of different CAM therapies, according to Mayo Clinic, only acupuncture, aromatherapy, biofeedback, massage, meditation, music therapy, and yoga have been proven to help an individual when used as an add-on to a standard evidence-based medicinal treatment. This is an important distinction to make. Some of these CIM therapies are useful and can help a sick patient, but it cannot and should not work alone in trying to cure a physiological problem. While this podcast focused primarily on one type of alternative medicine, we will briefly touch on several other methods to broaden your scope of understanding of the world of CIM. So who uses alternative medicine? We conducted a survey at the University of Florida to find out how often university students use alternative medicine and what techniques specifically. When you think of alternative medicine, what comes to mind? I think of like meditation and like essential oils. I think the first thing I think of is probably aromatherapy because that's what I'm like most familiar using. When I hear alternative medicine, what comes to mind is essential oils. Do you have any experiences with alternative medicine? Not really. I've used essential oils for pain before. I use aromatherapy. Um, Almost every day I have a little diffuser necklace. Um, I have like four essential oils right now. In this small scale of 46 students, 34.8% said they use alternative medicine and 65.2% said they did not. In another small scale study with 81 responses, 64.1% believed that alternative medicine worked, 24.7% did not think that alternative medicine worked, and 11.1% had no opinion on the matter. I do know some people, they use like the essential oils, like putting it on their skin, especially like if they have a cold or flu, try to release them that pressure. Have they said that it works for them? Do you know? They said yes, but not enough. I feel like there's also a placebo effect to it. My experiences with alternative medicine have been very positive. They work well for me. I do feel like it helped. I think it may have been a bit of a placebo. If I wake up and I'm super nauseous, it's like, oh, well, I'll go take a ginger root pill or I'll like have a ginger tea or like the ginger pill works for me. There are so many different CIM techniques that it would take us hours to decipher through scientific papers that either support or disprove the effectiveness of alternative medicine. So instead, we're just going to dive deeply into one well-recognized technique in alternative medicine, aromatherapy. However, before that, we do want to discuss other forms of alternative medicine you might be familiar with. As many of you may know, back pain is a common problem in the United States, with over 50% of Americans stating that they experience back pain at least once a year. It should be no surprise, then, that in the U.S. we spend about $25 billion a year on medical care related to back pain, and an additional $50 billion on lost productivity because of back pain-related problems. Back pain is actually a main reason why people tend to use alternative medicine. I think that this shows the desperation in people to help alleviate their pain that cannot be helped otherwise. A scientific article written in 2003 reviewed studies done researching the effectiveness of common alternative medicine treatments for back pain. Acupuncture, massage therapy, 
and chiropractic. Chiropractic spinal manipulation is actually the most popular alternative medicine therapy specifically for back pain in this country. This review, published in 2003, looked at every randomized controlled trial that evaluated the effectiveness of acupuncture, massage therapy, and chiropractic spinal manipulation for back pain since 1995 and found that generally, massage therapy works better than acupuncture. However, this is an extremely generalized statement that does not take into account the longevity of the pain or the location of the pain. However, because most research done evaluating these techniques are generally poor, it is difficult to draw clear and concise conclusions about the effectiveness of these techniques. Regardless, a lot of people use them. Do you see any benefits or downfalls to using alternative medicine? Yes to both. I think the benefit could be like, if it's something minor, like I do think essential orals could be easy about like opening up the sinuses, but if you have cancer, I don't think that would be a yeah, it gets way to... dangerous when you start yes, trying so would, to use it. That would be a downfall. I'd say the benefits are, it's not like messing with your system as much. Like I know if you take too much Tylenol, ibuprofen, it can harm your liver. So I think that there are some benefits to it. Essential oils can be expensive, but in comparison to like going to the doctor, especially if you don't have insurance, it can be cheaper. I think the alternative is it can like prolong me going to the doctor. If something's serious, I'll be yeah. like, oh, well, let me just try this and I'll try that and maybe this will fix it. And if it's serious, obviously like something as simple as a ginger root pill isn't gonna fix it. Um, so in that area, I would say it's a downfall, but for the most part, I've had like positive experiences. Like I said, aromatherapy, I really enjoy. Rebirthing. So what is it? Rebirthing is a coercive, restrictive technique that is usually directed at either foster or adopted children to try to increase the attachment the child has for his or her new parent. While rebirthing is not as common as it once was, Similar therapies designed for the same purpose are gaining popularity. These techniques include compression therapy, holding therapy, and corrective attachment therapy. And they aim to alter the attachment of the child by exerting force on the child and restraining them in some way. Some of these therapies will require CRT practitioners to impose their entire body weight on a small child, and this is supposed to induce calmness. Some more intense forms of these therapies, known as coercive restraint therapy, emphasize the absolute authority of the parent figure and require withholding food from the child for prolonged periods of time until the parents say so. Unfortunately, children have died in the past from the use of these techniques. In the year 2000, for instance, a 10-year-old girl in Colorado died from asphyxiation from a rebirthing therapy session. This technique is dangerous to children and in extreme cases, it has killed children but in lesser circumstances, it will cause irreversible psychological damage to these children. While many organizations, including the American Psychiatric Association, condemn these techniques, there are still people everywhere that use them. So, back to aromatherapy. What is it? Let's go and find out. Aromatherapy is defined as the use of aromatic oils extracted from plants for the use of therapeutic or preventative purposes. While aromatherapy began to gain its popularity in the United States just in the 1920s, it is not a new, trendy, all-natural way for people to avoid taking drugs. It is actually an extremely old practice that dates back to ancient civilizations of China, India, Egypt, and Greece. However, the birth of what we consider aromatherapy today is most often believed to have begun in France and in the earliest 20th century. So what are the claims around aromatherapy? 
Aromatherapy claims to help with an extremely broad range of things ranging from physical pain to psychological disorders, including pain, high blood pressure, nausea and vomiting, dementia, stress-induced anxiety, headaches, insomnia, depression, and digestive problems. Aromatherapy has several application methods. These include inhalation, massaged into the skin, and sometimes it can even be administered internally through ingestion. So why do people use it? Why do you think people tend to turn to these methods? I think it's scary about the side effects to prescription drugs and surgical means too. Like those are really big scary things. I think it's a bit of a fad, just like diets. They come in and out and I think that some forms of alternative medicine have become a fad. I think a lot of times, like I said, it's kind of just easier than like, oh, I have to schedule an appointment or a doctor's bills are so expensive. You can go to the grocery store and pay $5 for a vitamin or a tea or whatever it is. As we previously mentioned, alternative medicine is most often grouped together as CAM, and it makes sense that these therapies are often most effective when used as an add-on to standard evidence-based medicine. People most often turn to CAM therapies when they are looking for ways to better their overall well-being or to relieve the symptoms of a disease. However, other reasons for turning to these unconventional methods of treatment can be to have a more holistic approach to health or to change their view about the world, having a greater autonomy over their health. However, for aromatherapy specifically, its biggest appeal is that it is non-invasive and inexpensive relative to other alternative medicine routes that may improve overall well-being. So, is there any proof behind aromatherapy? The basis of any well-designed scientific experiment is its ability to control any confounding factors as much as possible to assure that the independent variable that is being altered between groups is the variable that is actually affecting the dependent variable. Experiments that test the effectiveness of new drug therapies are made into double-blind studies so that neither the participant nor the individual collecting the data knows which drug therapy they are receiving. They must also be carried out for a sufficient amount of time and must be administered to a large enough sample to be able to generalize it to the public. The problem with aromatherapy, like most alternative routes of medicine, tends to target subjective aspects of medicine such as pain and stress. It is very difficult to objectively measure either one of these irritating symptoms, so many studies that target them are forced to record the effectiveness of the treatment based on patient's subjective experience. Most importantly, in studies regarding the possible benefits of aromatherapy, the control group may receive no intervention, which is a red flag. These types of experiments are considered unblinded, in which each participant knows whether or not they are receiving the treatment. This alone can alter the effects of the experiments due to biases that the patient may already inherently have of aromatherapy and alternative medicine in general. A systematic review of 13 separate experiments that tested the effectiveness of aromatherapy on depressive symptoms unfortunately displayed many of these problems. In summary, of those 13 studies, five did not produce any significant differences in depressive symptoms between treatment and control groups. Of the eight that remained, three that claimed to have significantly relieved depressive symptoms did not have any intervention for their control groups, which means that these studies were unblinded. Does it work? While sitting in on a seminar conducted by a variety of University of Florida doctors, a surgical oncologist that specialized in performing surgery as a mean of cancer treatment told the story of one of his patients. A patient had come in for a consult regarding his cancer. The surgical oncologist recommended surgery to prevent the cancer from spreading to other parts of his body and killing him. 
but the patient insisted on alternative medicine techniques that he wholeheartedly believed would help cure his cancer. After some back and forth arguing against medical advice, the patient decided to delay the surgery and try the alternative medicine for a few weeks. The patient returned to the MD a few weeks later and unfortunately the cancer had spread throughout his body, a problem much more difficult, if not impossible, to solve now. While many people believe that the use of alternative medicine techniques may cause no harm to themselves, they still have a large potential for harming the patient using these alternative routes. The use of CAM techniques may cause a delay or complete avoidance of science-based treatments, as was exhibited by the patient of the story. Well, thank you for tuning in with us and listening to the pseudoscientific wonder of alternative medicine. As we said before, there's so much to talk about when it comes to the different techniques of alternative medicine and the different uses for them. There are hundreds and hundreds of scientific papers of CAM therapies, and it would take us hours to talk about all of them. Well, I hope you all enjoyed this episode and that you feel more scientifically educated on this mysterious aspect of science. If you have any questions of your own about alternative medicine, Google is your best friend. Tune in for next time.